Welcome, ladies, gentlemen, seafarers, mariners, and amphibians from beyond. You are listening to the Je Nicole pod series. The opinions presented in this series do not represent the official position of any government, organization, or entity. Welcome back to Je Nicole, everyone. I'm your host, Lucy, and welcome to this episode. Today's episode is part two of a special two-part series where we'll be discussing amphibious operations with a series of authors who contributed to a new book out called On Contested Shores, The Evolving Role of Amphibious Operations in the History of Warfare, which was published by the United States Marine Corps Press. Once again, I've placed the link below where you can read it for free. Highly recommend. Today in part two, I am joined by Kevin Rollins, who is a contributing author to the book. Kevin is a captain in the Royal Navy and has significant experience in amphibious operations, as well as having several published books under his belt as well. Welcome, Kevin, and thanks so much for joining me on John Nicole. Thank you, Lucy. It's great to be here. Starting it off, I guess um, you raised two key observations in your chapter about amphibious forces in the Royal Navy. Firstly, the perception that they are secondary to the, quote, real Navy, and that the lack of cultural sexiness, for want of a better word, of amphibious platforms like landicraft, for instance, are overlooked in favour favor of submarines and ships. Why do you think that is, and how do we raise awareness of the critical amphibious capabilities that we need for amphibious forces? Um, I'm, I'm glad you've reminded me of what, I, of what I've said, because uh, I don't think I use the word um, sexiness, but I think it's a really, I think it's a really good one because it, I think uh, traditionally the amphibious worlds have been probably the least sexy parts of the uh, uh, certainly of the surface navies. And I compare in, in my chapter, I compare them against you know, carrier strike. Certainly in the UK at the moment, against carrier strike, which gets all the news and attention. Um, why is that? Who, who wouldn't be more impressed by zoomy jets flying around the world um, in, instead of slow blocks of metal chugging along at 10 knots or 8 knots in the, in the sea with, with some tanks on them? So I think, I think there is th- the first reason for it is probably that, uh, that visibly and uh, emotionally the connection is, is far less to mo- for most people with uh, with the amphibious world than it is with other parts of naval forces, uh, but culturally as well, I think those of us that have been involved in that have probably too, been too quiet for too long, and we haven't shouted uh, to get the attention. Okay, so talk to me more about people have been quiet for too long and haven't shouted to get the attention. What do you think could have been done to to change that? Like specifically, do you have any examples? I think. I think it's moving the the pace of change and the pace of development has until recently has been has been pretty slow and there's been an assumption that uh not least because of uh global media of of general impressions you know if you if you if you sit in this part of the world uh, where I am in the UK and you think of amphibious operations your initial thought is probably of D-Day Normandy you know let's watch uh, Tom Hanks storm at the beaches of uh, of Normandy in in his film, uh, and that's the that's the impression. 
And until throughout the Cold War, uh, until the end of the Cold War, until the, we're getting into the 90s, that image of what amphibious meant storming a beachhead en masse, I think was what most people, including those involved in it, uh, assumed it would be. Uh, I'm, I'm generalising too much, but but I think sort of to make the point culturally, I think that's probably why. And, and, and so when other parts, if you think, parts of naval forces, if you think, you know, the, the, the rapid development of, of um, submarine capabilities or, uh, or rapid development of um, aircraft carrier capabilities from what we had in, in World War II to what we had at the end of you know, nuclear powered um, carriers at the end of the uh, the end of the Cold War, then the the relative lack of change in amphibiosity has been something that has been um, probably self inflicted uh, and and uh, and aided by media and global perceptions of what of what it really is, and that only started to change once we got into you know the brave new world of post Cold War uh, operations and. Uh, and then it was for for a very short period of time, because the Marines, and that's whether a Royal Marine in the UK or, or a US Marine uh, in the United States, the Marines then went off to fight in land wars, and so the attention from them was uh, was diverted away from the maritime and into land operations. Uh, again, generalising too much, but I, I, I think uh, most people would understand the point. Yeah, and so. We heard similar things from Sue and Tim on the previous episode where they were saying there's like a whole career of Marines, a whole generation, sorry, of Marines who have never really gone back to their roots. They've never served at sea. They've done counter-terrorism type operations for the entirety of their career. And, yeah, they've never been to sea at all. Is that quite similar for the, the British Marines as well? Or? I... Uh... My last time at sea in an amphibious capacity was as the chief of staff of the UK's amphibious task group, and that was until 2017, 18, I think. And uh, we were we were deploying the task group, and of course embarking Marines to go off. We were we were heading to the through the Mediterranean and off to the Middle East uh, to work with with the Americans, and we were embarking Marines. And most of the young Marines, and when I say young, I mean those that had 10 or less years of, of experience within the Marine Corps, uh, had uh, most had never been to sea, and a huge proportion had never even done the basic sea survival training. So it's not, it, became, uh, it became not even part of Marine training at the, uh, at the training establishments in, that we have at Limpston in, in the UK. They didn't even do basic training to get on to get on board a ship and learn location markings or how to put a fire a, a fire out, uh, and that's in a year long course that, that that taught them a hell of a lot about how to fight on land. And I find that quite a bizarre uh, a bizarre thing for for a marine, especially when you look at it in this country and you look at an ID card, and it it doesn't say army on it; it says Royal Navy. It doesn't say Royal Marines; it says Royal Navy, uh, and a fundamental part of the naval service. That had um, for um, for understandable but inexcusable reasons, I think, turned its attention away from the maritime environment. 
Yeah, that's kind of shocking, the part about the sea survival training is not done because you would think that even if the Marines were being predominantly used in land campaigns and land operations, they would still cover that in their training because, you know, you never know when the strategic environment is going to change, hence where we are now. So that was in 2017, 2018. Has it changed now? Do you, do you know if they are they training again? Um, I, I, I hope um, I hope it ch- has changed. Uh, I may get this wrong um, because I, I've not been tracking that development uh, recently. I hope it has changed. It was it was destined to be changed, but of course, at that time we were just coming out of the uh, the major deployments to Afghanistan, um, and and that was probably why that part of training had been had been sacrificed for, uh, you know, in, in inverted commas, things that were more important at the time. So I hope it has changed, and I hope I certainly know that the the within the UK, the, the the feel and the ambition of the Marines now is far more in the maritime space than it is in, in, in the land. Uh, and I think that's a, a, a great step forward and it makes um, utter sense to me. Yeah, and you mentioned the Cold War earlier. So how is the UK's amphibious capability or approach to amphibious operations changed since the Cold War comparatively? So, so as I said, at first it probably didn't because we were we were running on the legacy of, of the the concepts, the doctrine, the platforms that we had before, and so it probably didn't change uh, for for a good few years. And then in the mid late nineties, uh, when we started to uh, think again uh, and start to replace the platforms that we had, so the LPDs and the LSDs. Then we started to think uh, in, in in greater terms about the the capabilities and the and the things that that the uh, amphibious forces could do, and I think that if I put it simply, the move has been away from uh, mass um, opposed beachhead assaults uh, and into smaller, more, more discrete operations with specialised forces in a, in a dispersed manner. And that's been a 20, 25-year journey to, to get there, and it's still ongoing. But I think that's been the general direction of travel. Smaller, more, more bespoke, more um, probably more surgical in application. All right. And you talk a little bit about this in your chapter in the book, but can you talk through the UK's concept for the 2020 to 2030s of multiple forward deployed literal strike units and just explain what what the paradigm is? So the paradigm, so things move so fast that I, I wrote that chapter at the end of 2019 uh, and it's only been published in the, in the last uh, year or so and uh, already the names have changed. So I, I wrote about literal strike units and I think we're now calling them little response units or groups. And so the, the, the names have changed, but the idea, the paradigm is the same. Uh, so as I speak today, uh, the UK has has multiple deployments ongoing. So uh, our carrier strike group uh, is um, getting a lot of media attention, certainly in, in this hemisphere, and is heading through the Mediterranean into the Middle East and, and will be going to the Indo-Pacific. Um, simultaneously not getting as much attention. Uh, one of the uh, lit- literal response uh, groups is is heading north and is going to the high north and 
exercising with partners in Scandinavia and the Baltic region and is facing Russia in that way. So uh, that's that's the concept. So smaller um, task groups going in different locations and uh, the simplest manifestation of that now would be two two units or groups, uh, one that would be uh, heading north um, from the UK, so so that, that looking at the high north and Russia, and one that would be heading south southeast, so into Middle East and perhaps the Indo Pacific if it needed to. So specialising two areas, um, but then they would of course uh, be able to go to different parts of the world if necessary. Yeah. So do you think that there's an interest in the UK to? more frequently deployed to the Indo-Pacific? Because I know, speaking from the Australian perspective, it has received, that carry strike group deployment has received a very high level of attention, not just from within Australia, but particularly within the Southeast Asian nations and East Asian nations as well. Uh, it's become it's become absolutely central to our, um, to our ambition. So uh, as a country uh, and as a Navy, so as a country, as a... Uh, as a Minister of Defence for the UK, but as a Navy as well, to have more of a footprint and more of a presence in in the Indo-Pacific region. And you know, that's probably for obvious reasons, economic as much as um, anything else, economic and political. Um, and of course, you know, why do we have navies uh, if it's not to pursue national interests? And um, I won't go on at any great length about what's happened in the UK and our withdrawal from the European Union um, in the last few years, um, but but our attention has has probably focused away from our from our near abroad to um, to other parts of the world where we think there are there are opportunities for for us, um, but also great relationships to be built. And Indo Pacific is absolutely one of those, the main one. And I guess this is a little bit off topic, but I think something of interest both to myself and to our listeners, but. The whole great power competition thing, some of the other authors talk about it a lot in the book, in their respective chapters, particularly from the US perspective. How do you see the UK fitting into that great power competition, particularly seeing as most of the media typically describes it just between the US and China, obviously? But, yeah, how do you see the UK's position on it slash fitting into that scenario? So I'm not. I'm glad you did the disclaimer um, at the beginning, and that it's going to be written there. That, that these th- these views are absolutely mine. So you're getting really into Kevin Rowland's own territory of his mind. Um, so so the UK, Britain has um, has um, in its own in its own mind been a great power for the last thousand years, uh, and is is struggling to come to terms with the fact that it may not be any longer. Um, and and we, we've still got that. We've still got that, that mentality. So we absolutely, uh, as, a, as a country, as a nation, as a society, culturally want to be on, on the world stage and, and playing in great power politics. So you say US-China, uh, and I think, you know, a lot of the stuff that I read as, as well is, uh, especially from the US, is is looking at US China. Um, we obviously have a keen eye on China as well, but we are geographically that much more close to to Russia, and uh, and and the Russians are certainly making the mark felt at the moment in in Europe 
and around the world, but but certainly certainly in this neck of the woods. So I think um, I think there's U.S. China, U.S. Russia. The, there's I think the European Union. Never mind what I've um, said about our, our withdrawal. I think is a uh, plays great power politics, and I think India as well is, is you know by by dint of population location. Uh, and increasing military um, capability uh, is 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 a player on that stage. So I, I I don't believe there is any bipolarity. You know, two two major powers. I think the great powers. I think there are are numerous, some greater than others, but I think some are waxing and some are waning. Um, and I think the UK's role in that, um, if the UK gets its way, is to be an actor on every one of those little stages. Yeah. Okay. So we want we want to be in the fight, in the competition, not the fight. It's a competition, not a war. <laughs> <laughs> Was that a Freudian slip there? <laughs> um, so within the Royal Navy, thinking back to amphibious capabilities slash forces uh, more generally, more broadly, in your view, what capabilities and organisational changes need to start happening now? to enable a more effective amphibious force? Well, I think I think they are happening now. And I, I, I think it's I think it's brilliant. I think the uh, rate of change in in concepts and equipment um, for the UK's amphibious forces it has been uh, at an unprecedented pace um, far quicker than it has been for the since the Second World War, um, and that's been for the, over the last five or six years. So, so the the amphibious world that that I left in, you know, four, four, three or four years ago, I would I, I would struggle to recognise many of the many of the things that we have and, and we and we do now if I if I went back to sea tomorrow. Um, and I think that's I think that's amazing, and it's been done in a much more low key way overshadowed by by um our return to carry a strike um and, and that's not a bad thing i think um because we've just sort of we, we've just crept it up so the the um the ability to deploy in multiple locations simultaneously with a range of capabilities with um w- with equipment and people that are that are still um amongst the best if not the best in in the world and building incredibly successful um bi and trilateral partnerships with with other countries to to operate together i think has been you know is the key to success and so i don't think there's i don't think there's any particular thing that i could say now that we should be doing that we aren't because i think we are definitely heading in the right direction if I had if if I had more money, if I had a few hundred million pounds, I'd say we need a we need an LHD, um, but we don't, and we, we're getting away with it in a, in a in a different way. We talked before about the lack of sexiness historically about amphibious capabilities, and I think you use the phrase in your chapter that the UK's relationship with amphibious operations has been one of familiar familiarity rather than passion. So now that all of these actions are underway to improve the amphibious capability in the UK. Do you think that this perception among the general public will in turn change as well? I don't know. Um, I'd like to think so, but probably not, because um, 
it's still uh, it, it's still uh, a part of the armed forces that uh, only only gets seen when something special is happening. So it's the it's the constant thing in the background that is that, that is available, and it's it and it's not got that uh, immediacy and sexiness on the camera of of jets flying from a from a carrier or uh, or, or a you know nuclear missile being launched from a or a land attack missile being launched from a a, a surface ship or a submarine um, and so I, I'm not sure the I'm not sure the relationship will will turn from familiarity into passion um, I think I hope for more understanding and even if it's not within the general public I hope the understanding is grows amongst decision makers and those with money so politicians primarily I, I, I guess um, so that the what we have now and what we're getting doesn't suddenly get lost and and disappears because it, it doesn't have the attention that it deserves yeah and you know reading about amphibious operations more broadly outside of the book in preparation for this podcast I came across a couple of like really polarising comments where some military commentators kind of get into a black and white fallacy thinking where they say, oh, you know, we don't need an amphibious capability at all anymore. There's not going to be any kind of D-Day invasion. And you've kind of already alluded to this, but it doesn't have to be black or white, right? So it might not necessarily be about a raid, um, but could be about naval special warfare or something like that. Do you, do you agree with that statement? Absolutely, um, I think I think it would be foolish and um, for anybody to say that that, that a D Day scenario would never happen again. Um, at the scale, it probably won't. But I can I can definitely see um, a need uh, or a potential at some point in in future for for uh, an assault or a raid uh, against uh, on an opposed shore from the sea. I, I don't think that's something to be dismissed, and that may have to be done at at mass. So I think that that needs to be kept in in the back of our minds. But the the employment of amphibious forces in today and in future, I think, is much more likely to be more sophisticated, more. I think I used the word surgical earlier, so more precise um, and and much more highly specialized. So. We, we, you know, we talk about things like um, anti-access and area denial and uh, countering other um, nations' um, um, sp- um, naval special warfare capabilities. And I think using amphibious forces. So uh, I think it's worth just reminding ourselves what what we might mean by amphibious. And it, you know, it doesn't. It it, it means you can operate on land and at sea. And most of our most of our um, through through the history of all naval warfare uh, up until probably the Second World War and then and then after the Second World War, um, the, the the history is at the seams of the land and the, the land and the sea. That's where the action takes place. That's where the uh, that's where the important things happen, and um, we need to be there um, uh, and make it count. Yes, and I think I, I read recently, as I'm sure it's blowing up in the news in the UK about the Russia-UK uh, warship Tango the other day. Do you have any uh, observations on that? I think I read the initial reports that came out. I, I was on Twitter at the time and came out that the 
the Russian state or not actually affiliated with the state but some sort of Russian-linked media had said that they'd fired warning shots, which later the Ministry of Defence said did not happen at all. Um, I've only followed this as well on uh, on the news and on, on social media and exactly that. So warning shots have been fired. Everything's everything's happening. We've got 20 aircraft buzzing one ship uh, and then the Ministry of Defence saying, no, it wasn't like that at all and, and no warning shots. Um, I, I have no more information than that, um, but I think it's I think it's a really interesting um uh, interesting event um uh, uh, and if um if it's about showing um showing to support to regional friends if not if not allies uh showing that we will uh, be prepared to uh, practice freedom of navigation and not be put off by by opposing forces then uh, I think you know that's a good example of what what can happen. It's something that's happened pretty um, regularly, I think, in in the South China Sea. It's very interesting to see this now um, in a different part of the world, um, and it's interesting that it's happened to us uh, and not uh, and not another nation's warship. Yeah, it is interesting. All right, so I think that is now time to get to. One of our favourite parts of the episode, which is the Sailors 3. So that's when we ask three questions for every podcast guest to answer. So for those of you who are tuning in to Jeunicole for the first time, we'll quickly run through them and then we're going to ask Kevin the questions. So the first question is their favourite military platform in service or from history with a brief explanation of why, of course. Second question is the most interesting emerging technology at any stage of development. It can even be a bit of a stretch goal that's not really a reality yet. Or the third question is the wild card where our guests can pick a to make a prediction for the future of military operations and technology. They can recommend a book for emerging leaders to read or a tip for emerging maritime leaders. So Sailors 3, here we go. Kevin, are you ready? I'm ready. All right. So number one, your favourite military platform in service or from history. What are you going to go with today? Right. I thought about this long and hard. I thought, oh, what kind of ships and things could I say? And then I thought, no, I'm going to stick with the amphibious theme. And my favourite platform, I'm going to put down as the V-22 Osprey. Um, I, uh, I've i had the privilege of flying in those things a few times. It's really exciting when you do and the transition from you know, horizontal to vertical flight, it makes you feel a bit a bit queasy, but it's great. Um, but in, in in terms of importance, um, I've been in in amphibious ships where we have um, wondered how the how the hell our surface connectors that, that chug along at eight or ten knots can can get the um, the landing force to the place that they need to be, especially in bad weather, or our helicopters, which. Uh, are a bit quicker but have limited capacity and, and range uh, are going to compete. Uh, and then you look at something like the Osprey, that's got capacity, range, speed, uh, manoeuvrability, uh, and I think it's a it's a real game changer. I wish we had some of those things. Um, and yeah, that's my that's my choice. Yeah, I've I've had the privilege of seeing them fly before. I haven't been inside one, but they are a very impressive platform. Big fan. All right, next question is most interesting emerging technology at any stage of development. Right, so for this one, uh, if anybody in the UK is listening to this and has seen uh, our news over the past few uh, months, 
they'll just ridicule me and, and laugh at me because I'm going to say, um, I'm going to say, the jet suit <laughs> that's been pioneered by a, a commercial company that the Royal Marines have been uh, have been uh, showing. And when 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 we've talked earlier about the sexiness of of amphibious operations versus other things, um, this is our, our only chance of getting to the sexy world. So <laughs> this is people with with strapped to them flying around uh, and looking super cool um and you you speak to friends and colleagues who say yeah yeah all looks good for the news and it's great pr but has it got any military application or naval application uh at all and you know in the short term maybe not but in the in in the not too distant future i see that as being uh, uh, really uh, an important development because I think it's, again, manoeuvrability, uh, maritime interdiction, boarding operations, um, manned uh, or crewed uh, surveillance, um, all kinds of things that I've talked about um, uh, precision and the surgical application of of force and what better way of doing that than, than flying an individual. And if these packs can become cheaper lighter quieter greater range which i've no doubt they will do in in in, in time then i think they'd be they're fantastic and i want and i want one yeah i want one too i saw the video and, and it was very cool you could definitely use that on a recruitment ad i think you'd uh, see an influx of recruits and yeah i think you know even in the current stage where it's like still noisy doesn't really have any stealth when we talk about military presence coming onto a boarding operation, that would do it, wouldn't it? If you see a guy coming in a jetpack onto your ship, it, it, it would, and it's more, it's no more uh, it's no more susceptible to um, you know to being counted, I suppose, than than somebody rapid roping down from a helicopter. Let's go with it. Much more sexy. Okay, so Kevin, for the third and final question, wild card, are you going to pick a prediction, a book, or a tip? I'm going to go easy on this one. Um, I'm not going to predict anything because it would be wrong. Um, I'm not going to give any tips because uh, at the moment I work in professional military education and I spend my life um, probably trying to give tips and, again, getting it wrong to to future leaders. Uh, and so I'm going to go with the easy option and go with a book. And what I should say, of course, is on on contested shores, um, otherwise you know, I, I'd I wouldn't be plugging the reason I'm, I'm, I'm on here, but I'm not going to choose that one. I'm going to choose um, another one, which may may superficially be of less interest to anyone in Australia. Um, but I think that's that the, the message in the book is uh, is much broader than the title suggests, and it's the book is the, the decline of European naval forces, and it's by a friend of mine called Jeremy Stowes. Um, he's a he's an Austrian who works in Germany at the moment. It's written in English, um, but it's a it's a fantastic book, and it explains, I think, in a really easy, accessible, uh, and simple way why the the medium sized powers of of Europe, why the naval forces have declined uh, in in absolute and relative terms over the past few decades uh, and it's a really interesting read it's very thought-provoking and I think it's very applicable to to the rest of the world yeah no that sounds good I'll definitely add it to my list and I mean Australia is a middle power anyway medium power so that could definitely have some correlation for us thank you very much for the tip 
So thank you so much for joining us on Jeune Nicole, Kevin, and for being a good, good sport and participating in our Sailors 3. It's been a pleasure having you. And we highly recommend you read his chapter on Contested Shores. That is the link for it is down below. So check it out. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks, Lucy. It's been great. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to Jeune Nicole Pod. Stay in contact with us via jeunecole underscore pod on Twitter or www.jeunecole.com.